0: so it's estimated that americans gave and this is a this is a conservative estimate that americans gave half a trillion dollars to charitable causes in 2020 so that's a lot of money and it's hard to get our hands around how much money that is so that is recognized more than the gdp of many countries of the vast majority of countries in the world more than the gdp of poland of austria South Africa, Thailand, Belgium, right, more than all of those countries. That's how much was given just in America to charitable causes. So if you give to any kind of charitable cause this morning, I wonder what causes get your attention, right? How do you decide what is worth your wealth? You know, of those charitable causes, it's also estimated that about one-third of them went to religious purposes. So more than education, more than any other charitable purpose, more of that money went to religious causes and purposes. And of those, it's estimated just within the Southern Baptist Convention, just within our family of churches, one billion went to missions. That, according to the SBC, one billion. So that's one with a whole lot of zeros behind it. That's one with nine zeros to be exact. And friends, that begs the question, what kind of missions work ought to get our attention as a denomination? You know, even more specifically, this church, University Baptist Church, has a long history of valuing the gospel getting out to the nations, And here we are as a church and the great kindness of God with budget surpluses where we're able to give more money to work. So how do we as a congregation discern what is worth our own investment, right? What metrics should we be using to evaluate the work? Well, friends, to help us think about these things, I want us to turn again to Paul's letter to the Second Corinthians. So we're going to be in chapter two verses 12 through 17. And if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, don't worry about that. We provide them for you and the seatbacks there. Uh, you can find our text on page 965. So we finally flipped from page 964, where we were for the last few weeks. Now we're in page 965. Now if you prefer, we just say so you know, we do actually have Spanish Bibles. Right, if English is a second language, do you have Spanish? Maybe your original language. We do have Spanish Bibles at Connecting points, So, right out these doors, just to the right of uh, the doors out to the courtyard, you can find Spanish Bibles as you like. And if you're new to the Bible, right, the chapter numbers, those big bold numbers, the verse numbers are those little superscript numbers. And if you are just joining us, the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians there, uh, their relationship is on the rocks. Things aren't going over so well at the moment. So it seems the the Corinthian church is more interested right in the status and in the prestige of their congregants more interested in that it seems than in the holiness and in the purity of Christ's church. And so what they have done is they have as a congregation turned a blind eye it seems to scandalous sin in their midst And things there are a mess in Corinth. And Paul sought in his first letter to them, 1 Corinthians, uh, to put things straight. But not all have taken his correction lying down. Some are putting up a fight. Some are seeking to discredit Paul wherever they can. Right? They don't like being called out. They don't like having their sin called out. I mean, honestly, I mean, who amongst us does enjoy having our sin called out? And indeed, Paul's visit to Corinth after writing 1 Corinthians, that went so poorly that he in fact decided to delay his next trip. So let tempers calm, right? Hopefully cooler heads will prevail, give it some time. And so what Paul does is he sends his co-worker Titus. He sends him instead to Corinth so that Titus can check in, see how the church is doing. Titus maybe can mend some fences. Maybe Titus can build some bridges that Paul feels like have been burned. And the plan then is for Titus and for Paul to rendezvous back in Troas. And friends, that brings us to chapter 2, verse 12. Let's begin reading. Paul writes to them, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death. To the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity. As commissioned by God. In the sight of God. We speak in Christ. All right, so right here. We've really come to a turning point in Paul's letter. So verse 13 highlights Paul's own fear and anxiety of not finding Titus there in Troas. And so Paul is going to leave, we read, for Macedonia, which is just say he's going to leave for, for northern Greece. And will Paul find Titus there, right? What will be the news of Corinth? Well, we don't actually get that update until all the way forward in chapter 7. Verse 5. So just flip with me in your Bibles for a moment. Look forward to me to chapter 7, verse 5. Paul says he's going to go to Macedonia. He's going to look for, look for Titus. And he picks up that, that train of thought in chapter 7, verse 5, where we read, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast... You hear echoes of of the first chapter right there comforted us by the coming of Titus right and then he's gonna go on and he's gonna continue really the stream of thought that he that he begins here in chapter 2 verse verse 13 and it's actually in between chapter 2 verse 13 and then he resumes that thought in chapter 7 5 we have this whole other section of the letter what some call just this long digression but in many ways Right, right here between 2.13 and 7.5 is actually the theological heart of the letter. In many ways, it's actually the book's sort of theological center of gravity because Paul is going to highlight the very nature and essence of true gospel ministry and sort of what's to characterize faithful gospel ministry. And so I want us to think about our passage sort of in these four ways. As we think about gospel ministry, as we think about what we're to be about, what we're to support. Let's think about the purpose. Let's think about the promise, the product, and the pattern. So nice, simple four Ps, all right? The purpose, the promise, the product, and the pattern. So let's first look at the purpose. Let's first look at the purpose, verses 12 to 13. So we read in chapter 2, verse 12, that that Paul came to to Troas, and Troas was was a city on the western shores of modern-day Turkey, right? It's right on the Aegean Sea, just about 10 miles from the ancient city of Troy. Suetonius tells us that actually Julius Caesar at one point wanted to make this city the future seat and heart of the Roman Empire. This is actually the city where Paul, if you know from Acts 16, Paul on his second missionary journey while he's passing through Troas, that's where he receives that Macedonian vision that he needs to take the gospel from Asia and to actually be the first to take the gospel to Europe. Right? That vision he receives in Acts 16 is actually right here in the city of Troas. And it was also where Paul, later on his third missionary journey, he preached, if you remember, not just to Midnight, But he preached all through the night. So some of you guys complain about my long sermons, right? All through the night. And if you recall what happened to poor Eutychus, fell asleep, right? It was a snoozer of a sermon. Paul gave those two. He knocks out, falls out the window. You remember the story? Thankfully brought back to life, right? That's also in Troas. But notice why Paul went to Troas in verse 12. He went And this is a purpose clause right here. He went with the purpose to preach the gospel of Christ. That was his aim and goal. His purpose of going to this particular city was not just to tour it, but to preach Christ there. Friends, all missions has as its purpose, as its aim, gospel presentation. All faithful missions does alleviating human suffering, that's a good thing, right, encourage human flourishing and prospering, yeah, that's also a good thing, but all of those things are secondary and subservient to the preaching of Christ, which is why just as a congregation, I mean as Christians first, but particularly as a congregation, our own missions ought to prioritize those who prioritize, like Paul, gospel preaching, and friends, that takes significant investment. That takes significant investment of time, of resources. I mean, consider Paul. He was, when it came to the Bible, right, he, the guy was a grandmaster. I mean, remember in, in Galatians, he was, we're told he was top of his class, right, summa cum laude. There was no one ahead of Paul in, in sort of Bible knowledge, it would seem. And yet, after his conversion, the Lord would still send him away for 14 years, that's a long seminary training, right? 14 years before he began his own public ministry. You can read about that in Galatians 2. So, 14 years, it seems, God had to give him some kind of missions understanding, better gospel understanding, church planting preparations, character, heart transformation. All of that was necessary before Paul began his own public ministry. And somehow, we often can think that. We can send folks to the comforts of a a domestic training center for a few weeks, and they're all good to go. You know, it requires Bible training if we're going to go and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. How do we teach people to obey, as Christ called us to? Not some, not just a few essentials, but all that Christ commanded. How do we teach them to obey all of that if we don't know all of that? We can't communicate all of that. We can't explain that to them. Right, it requires cross-cultural training. I mean, how do you transition into a new culture? I remember what it was like to come from Washington, D.C. here and step on toes. We speak the same language most of the time. Right? We, we, we're in the same country. Like, we get one another. Just imagine moving into an entirely different culture with different priorities, different ways of expression. Right? How do you contextualize? How do you enculturate? Friends, that's going to mean language training. I mean, how do you really expect to preach the core and essence of the gospel as we think about justification by faith alone and penal substitutionary atonement? How can you communicate that when your understanding of their language is hello, goodbye, and like, how do I get to the loo? You need more than that. And it requires church training. Because turning converts into disciples requires local churches. So as we saw in Acts, as we preached through, right? The Great Commission is fulfilled through the planting of local churches. The local church is Jesus' own discipleship program. And yet, how many fail to grasp that? How many missions agencies fail to understand that? In part because how many pastors use the church, right? They treat it like a business maybe. They leverage it for the sake of their own personal brand. Any, uh, if you've read the, the little book on missions by Annie Johnson, you know, he reminds us um, that the church in the scriptures, according to Jesus, the church is the bride. Everything else is a bridesmaid. Every other parachurch organization, Southern Baptist Convention, IMB, whatever you want to name, all the bridesmaids that are meant to serve and to focus and to exalt the bride Christ in the expression of the local church. Friends, all of that takes time. You know, it's one of the reasons why even just this very week, you know, John Henderson has been working with Cole and Mike Griffiths on a five to seven year cross-cultural training program. And we're going to think about it as elders this week. And that includes, for example, a year of comprehensive Bible training. And we hope to launch that, our hope, next year starting in the fall. And that's not just for those who want to go into cross-cultural ministry work. That would be necessary and important for them. That's for every member of the church, right? We want every member of the church to be better instructed in the Bible, knowledge of the Bible. It's going to encourage them spiritually. It's going to help them share it with others. Right, So that's, just, that's going to be open to all, but in addition to that, friends, remember that's why we have a residency, because everywhere Paul preached, he sought to establish churches, which means missionary teams we send ought to have at least one elder qualified man who could pastor a local church if God would provide the converts. It's why we set aside money to help send people to places like Radius or other cross-cultural immersion programs. And you just can't microwave this process, right? There's no substitute for careful preparation. But of course, the temptation, right, is to to rush it. We want results. We often value, right, efficiency over quality, passion over proficiency, short term zeal over long term fidelity. Those are all temptations in the work. You know, there's a reason why, sadly, so much of what is often celebrated in missions years later, sometimes even months later, just doesn't exist. And it's clear that Paul was committed to his work. He didn't stop for just a few weeks or a few months. He didn't try to record as many saves as a Baptist preacher, right? He wasn't wasn't after that. He was genuinely after the hearts and the lives and the maturity of the Corinthian church. Months there, years there, multiple visits, letters. So therefore, notice what happens. Notice what happens when Titus doesn't show up in Troas. Paul notes the Lord had opened a door there in Troas for ministry, but when he doesn't find Titus, despite those gospel opportunities, Paul moves on. And ask yourself, why would Paul move on if the Lord had opened a door? Right? New city, new fertile soil. Perfect opportunity to maybe record some converts for the, for the home office. You know, that's the kind of thing that'll be great on those, those ministry update flyers. Right? They'll look great on those pamphlets. But friends, I think Paul left because Paul's heart, it was burdened over the Corinthian church. Burdened over his brother Titus. Right? He wasn't going simply for maximizing as many decisions as possible. He was trying to build mature disciples. He had long-term ministry in view. He was committed to seeing healthy churches established. Even if that meant halting temporarily gospel work in a new context in order to go back to an old one and shore up that work. Paul was committed to it. And God seems to have honored that commitment because if you keep reading into Acts 20, about a year later from what we're having here, Paul is able to go back to Troas. He's able to spend a good week there. And the the Lord, we read, had kept that door open for ministry. But it does just raise a question about Titus. Because if you read through the New Testament, this is actually the first time we hear his name. The first time we encounter Titus in the New Testament and we don't know a ton about Titus. We know from Galatians 2, we know he's a Gentile, which means he's not a Jew. Paul actually mentions him specifically as proof that Gentiles could be converted without works of the law, like circumcision. We know that Titus is Paul's co-worker, so Paul sends him to Corinth. He's going to later send him to Crete, we read in Titus, the book given to him, and and Paul sends him to Crete in order to put into order, right, what remained lacking in the churches there, namely, they didn't have a plurality of elders, and so the express reason Paul sends Titus to Crete is to bring elders to those local churches, Titus 1-5. But notice, perhaps the most important thing about Titus is what we read right over. Paul calls him, verse 13, what? He calls him my brother. He calls him my brother. Which is a remarkable statement because there's no greater divide than Jew versus Gentile. And you can't get more Jewish than Paul. And yet in Christ, these guys are brothers. Christ transcends that great divide between Jew and Gentile. Between Paul and between Titus. Which always should serve as an important reminder to us. Right? We live in polarizing times, or particularly partisan times, and we need to be careful that we not let you know, our convictions on political parties or economic policies or how you think about schooling priorities or vaccines and the rest, we do need to be careful about those things, that they aren't the things that primarily define us. Because some of you may love the National Review. Some of you may love the Atlantic. Some of you may know neither, but they come from different perspectives, You know, some of you may think the biggest story this past year was the verdict on Ahmaud Arbery. Some of you may think the big story was the verdict on Kyle Rittenhouse. Should we have to be in different churches? You know, the world might say, depending on what verdict you thought was most significant, that we ought to be in different churches. But I think the gospel would say otherwise. You know, you may think the biggest risk to the Christian church is wokeism. Another may think it's racism. Another may think it's Christian nationalism. Do we have to lob grenades at one another as if we are part of entirely different religions? Is this not a place where Christians can think differently about some of these things and yet still be brothers and sisters in Christ who worship together? You know, do we have room for that in our own theology? Or to put it another way, is, is Christ what really unites us, or is our unity really driven by something else? Do we have a commitment that may run prior to and even deeper than our commitment to Christ that some of these discussions are revealing in our own hearts? That's not to say we won't have disagreements, and it's not to say those disagreements don't matter I have convictions, I assure you, on all the things I just talked about. But it is to say that Paul's purpose was to preach the gospel, a gospel that united both Jew and Gentile, and made them one, and they gathered in the same congregations. And that's remarkable. And that's gospel revealing. And that's what we want in our churches. Okay, now that's the purpose Secondly, I want us to consider the promise, the promise, because think about Paul for a moment. Paul, his ministry is not exactly on a roll at this point. The church in Corinth he founded, the church in Corinth that he planted, right, that church, many of them are rejecting him, right? He's just been run out of Ephesus, right? Titus is AWOL. We know he's anxious emotionally. We know he's afflicted physically, right? Paul We're not going to say Paul's really killing it in ministry. Not in this season. And no doubt, like all of his detractors there in Corinth, they could see it. They smell blood in the water, right? They're trying to use all this against Paul to discredit him. But, verse 14, Paul says, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, even through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere so right here in verse 14 Paul is turning his eyes heavenward he's really turning them toward a promise and he's giving thanks to God in the knowledge that God is doing two things in his life he's giving thanks for these two things he knows God is doing and that is God is leading him in triumphal procession in Christ That's the first thing God's doing in his life. And through him, secondly, God is spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. So leading him in triumphal possession in Christ and through him spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. And it's right here in verse 14 that Paul begins that thick theological digression, not so much a digression, but really an apologetic for what gospel ministry is all about. And that's what he begins right here. And he begins with this recognition that God is at work. So he's not aimlessly wandering about the Mediterranean, right? His, his travels aren't those of a confused and incompetent minister. No, he's, he's saying here, listen, my life is under the Lord's direction, always. You know, his, his life, none of our lives, Christian lives, it's not a part-time gig. It's always. God has all of us all the time. And now, that expression, though, being led in triumphal procession, that, if you're familiar at all with this passage, that expression has spawned considerable debate in, in Christian circles. Now, it's clear, this is one thing that just about everyone agrees about. Paul has in mind here the Roman, right? A, a, the Roman uh, practice of, of a victorious general returning from the battlefield, and he would return from war. So when Rome conquered a new territory, or maybe reconquered a territory they had held, it was celebrated with this procession, with this grand parade. And it was a bit of a macabre parade. And it would, it would parade through the city, and you're, you'll see what I mean. Because first, in this parade would become the spoils of war. So there would be gold, and there would be silver that had been captured. There would also be pictures and lists of conquered peoples and cities and all the rest. That would lead out in the front. And that would be followed, actually, by the conquered peoples themselves. So they, the conquered peoples, would follow, whichever of them were left, in chains, heads hung low in shame and in humiliation, including whatever was left of their military men. They also were marched forward. And the citizens of the streets, right, they would be jeering at these people, leering at them, right? These, These are the enemies, but then would follow the incense bearers where this aroma of victory was meant to be wafting in the air and trumpets would be blown. And those same citizens upon, upon seeing this, right now they're start to, starting to cheer and, and they would be followed by the Romans who had been liberated perhaps from slavery. So if they were reconquering a previously conquered territory and if Romans had been taken captive. Those Romans that had been freed from their captivity, they would now march out ahead. And behind them would become actually the victorious soldiers that had fought in the battle and followed their general. And it was lastly followed by the great general himself. Fully decked out, usually purple toga, face red. I have no idea why they painted their faces red. They're hog fans, I don't know. (laughs) Military regalia, right? They were all drawn. Stately war horses, beautiful chariot, grand theatrical pomp. That's what would march through the city. And it could take hour after hour after hour. Kind of like a Macy's Day parade, right? It goes on forever, but it's, it's bloody, it's gory, it's dark. And what's important is that at the end of that parade, whatever was left of the military men that had been conquered... They were sacrificed to the gods. They were slaughtered. This was a true death march for them. And the conquered peoples were either killed or sold off into slavery. And Paul's going to grab this image. But he's going to place Christ as the conquering general. He's the one in the chariot receiving all the glory and applause. But the question is this. Where does Paul see himself in the parade? Where is he in this parade? Where is his life and ministry? And many would say that Paul sees his life and ministry actually in the defeated captives. Paul's presenting himself in his ministry as a, as a kind of spoil of war. He has been defeated by Christ held in chains, and, and in some ways his, his ministry looks like a ministry of humiliation and shame as he's paraded about the world. And while that may seem like a counterintuitive reading, Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 4.9, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to be death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. And in that sense, Paul would be led as a slave to death in order to display the glories of Christ the conqueror. Now, others would say, ah, no, that's not the best way to look at it. It's better to see Paul as actually part of this victorious, triumphant procession. So he's either the incense bearer, or he's been one of those freed from captivity, and now he's marching with joy, or he was part of that victorious Roman army, whatever it might be, but he is celebrating Christ's victory as he is on his way to that eternal city where God dwells as king and his enemies will be destroyed. Others say that's the way to read it. Now, it's honestly pretty hard to know. Dissertations written on the subject. Someone asked me about my reading and I said, "You know what? It's going to be a game time decision. I'll figure it out when I'm up in the pulpit." I'm kidding, but <laughs> point is like Christians, again, Christians differ. And both things theologically are true elsewhere in Scripture. When we follow Christ, is it often in humiliation and shame before the world? Yes. Does God win? Are we marching in victory, though? Yes, that's true, too. Point is, what's Paul getting at here in this context with this reference? And personally, I actually think the latter understanding is probably more likely in that he is marching triumphantly not as the captive in chains but preceding Christ and giving praise and glory to Christ. I think the fundamental problem with seeing Paul as a defeated captive is that that would make him an enemy of God. One who would be slaughtered and perish. And that's part of what verses 15 and 16 are going to go on to describe. And that kind of a reading If you're an opponent in Corinth, yeah, you're gonna grab onto that reading and say, that's exactly what we've been telling you. Paul's an enemy of God. Why are you gonna trust that guy? I just think in context, it makes a little less sense. Was Paul an enemy of God at one point in his life? Go read Romans 5. Yeah, he was. But Christ did liberate him. Christ had freed him. Christ had redeemed him. He's no longer destined for destruction like the rest of God's enemies, but he's destined, again, for everlasting life, and that's part of what he gets onto as we keep going. So others may see defeat in his life, but Paul's saying, my life is one grand march. Yeah, I'm marching around the Mediterranean. It seems like I don't know where I'm going, but this is finally a victory march, and I am celebrating and demonstrating the victory of Christ in my life. And that, I think Paul's helping us see, it's that kind of promise and that kind of confidence that ought to fuel all faithful gospel ministries, this unyielding confidence that we, we live for something greater than this world, right? We're destined for something better than this world, better than we could possibly imagine. And that's the confidence with which we minister. That's the promise we hold on to in the midst of the trials and the difficulties of life, right? If this life is all we're living for, He's already told us, 1 Corinthians 15, we're to be most pitied of all men. But if our lives are about something bigger, if they're about something cosmic, something eternal, something everlasting, then of course, they're worth celebrating and cheering. So I wonder, my Christian friend, do you believe even this morning that your life is under the guidance and direction of God? Or do you believe, as you look to your life, that you're blown about by all the winds of chance and fate? Are you tempted to believe that all that's happening to you, as no doubt Paul must have been tempted to believe was somehow outside of God's control, that there's no purpose, there's no point to all the the trials and struggles of your life? I mean, how is your own life celebrating the eternal victory of God? How does it celebrate that? Do you live with a kind of joy that recognizes that decisive battle has been won and it is done and Christ reigns victorious? Does your life reflect that in any obvious ways? Or do you live with this constant gloom as if Christ has been defeated and there's nothing truly to celebrate, there's nothing really to look forward to? Or maybe do you live as if Christ's kingdom was actually on the line such that with every election with every piece of legislation with every supreme court decision that the kingdom of Christ somehow now hangs in the balance faithful gospel ministry always rests in this confidence that Christ has conquered and he is marching and he knows exactly where he's going And he's taking his people with him. And he's not left us to establish his reign at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. He reigns in the heavens over all of humanity. And we get to testify to it, to proclaim it, to display it, to celebrate it. But we're never called to build it, create it, make it, establish it. That's what Christ does. And that's, again, the promise of gospel ministry. And it's that that's to actually mark those we support in gospel ministry. But friend, again, just does that mark you? If you're a Christian, does that mark you at all? You can pray for, you want to know how to pray for me? Pray would mark me. Pray would mark me as your pastor. You know, it's, I confess it's just as easy as me. I trust for you to be weighed down by discouragements, right? Things in life that don't go the way that we want right? Bodies don't do what they're supposed to do. Kids don't do what they're supposed to do, as if we ever do what we're supposed to do. Churches don't go as they're supposed to go. Always a crisis, always a problem. And the next thing you know, you know, in our house, my wife's looking at me and she's like, when did Jesus die? It's easy to feel at times like we're shuffling toward a funeral and to have that countenance about us. When Paul's reminding us we are marching in a victory procession. We are on our way to an eternal city where we'll behold God throughout all eternity. Friends, it ought to mark me more. I trust it probably ought to mark you more. Maybe not Ed Ray, maybe not a few of us, right? Most of us ought to mark most of us more, especially those, again, that we support in gospel work with that kind of confidence. Third, though, I want us to consider the product of this kind of a hope, this kind of a promise, this kind of confidence. What's the product of that? Thirdly, what's the product? What kind of life is produced when this hope is taken to heart? Because we're to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ because, as Paul says, verse 15, because we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Now, Paul will often talk about his life as a sacrificial offering, right? Philippians 2.17. And he'll say we're to present our own bodies, our own lives as living sacrifices to God, right? Romans 12.1. And that is certainly true. I don't think, though, that's Paul's point here. Paul's not mixing his metaphors, I don't think, but I think he's continuing here with that image of the Roman triumphal procession. That's the image, I think, that's being continued. And it's as if Paul is now seeing himself as an incense bearer of that great victory march. Right, He's holding that pole, he's holding it proudly, He's holy, highly. highly. He's, he's spreading that incense of Christ's victory. He says that's what his life is meant to be. That's what it's supposed to be, the aroma of Christ, Paul says. You know, when Aaron and I were first in college, there was no email. I mean, just let that sink in for a moment. I know, hard to imagine, right? There weren't cell phones with, like, unlimited calling and texting options. Uh, the phones were largely like bolted to the wall. Uh, and I think it cost around 20 cents a minute to make a call, which if you're a student means you're not going to be on the phone a whole lot. And so we would have to write letters, something I confess I was quite poor at, but Aaron was quite good at. And you know what? That's actually summed up our marriage ever since. All the things she's good at and all the things I'm poor at. At any anyway, rate, I digress. But I bring all this up because I would often know if I would received a letter from her before I was ever able to go through all the mail. Because I'd go and I'd open up my little mailbox and I could smell the letter. Before I saw it, I could smell it. I knew it was there. The fragrance of the perfume that she had sometimes put in those letters alerted me to the fact that it was there. And my Christian friend, our lives are to be somewhat like that. There is to be, Paul says, a distinct fragrance about them, an aroma that is in our lives to smell like Christ. Friends, does your life smell like Christ? It's a good thing to ask yourself, right? If you will, like every morning and throughout the day, we are putting on cologne or perfume. We will smell like something by the way in which we live. And either it's satisfying or it's rather sickening. Either it smells like flowers or it smells like funk. And just ask yourself, when people get close to you, what do they smell? You know, if you're a college student, if you're a teen, none of us wants to be known as that person who stinks, right? So ask yourself, what odor are you putting off? What are you putting off? Like you're going to smell like something. That's unavoidable. We can't escape that. So does your Christian life, does your Christian life smell like three-day-old sweaty socks? Or does it smell sweet like Christ? Is Christ holding his nose as he takes a whiff of your life and just trying not to ralph? Or can he breathe deeply in and that life causes him delight? just even recognize as we think of that question, and it's a good one, an important one, recognize that that what Christ finds delightful, others will find disagreeable, even noxious, even offensive. Because notice, to some the aroma of Christ, verse 16, is a fragrance, or you could also translate that word a stench. To some, the aroma of Christ is a stench from death to death, whereas to others it's this fragrance, this sweet smell of life to life. So Paul's saying when you smell like Christ, when the fragrance of his kingdom and his victory fills the air, the conquered enemy marching there in chains, they will hate it, they will despise that smell, and they will despise all that it represents. It's from death and it's to death is those who love Christ. Those who celebrate Christ, right? They're going to delight in that smell. And that is the inevitable product, friends, of faithful ministry. It will divide. It just will. It always does. The more you smell like Jesus, the more the world will want to snuff it out. Faithful gospel ministry always divides. And I say that and we do need to be careful because the offense should never be us. We're good at making the offense us. The offense shouldn't be us. The way we speak to others, the way we behave, right, that shouldn't be the offense. That serves nobody. The offense ought to be the aroma of the gospel itself. And we can't help when others find God's gospel offensive. That's outside of our control. To some, it will stink of death. And therefore, it will result and lead to their death eternally, spiritually. That's what Paul's saying. Whereas the others, it will smell sweetly of life and it will lead to life, everlasting life. Because Paul's helping us see what we don't like to accept, but that there are in this world only two categories of people. Two kinds of people. He says, verse 15, those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Those are the only two kinds of people in this world The gospel itself is the dividing line that separates humanity into those two categories. And that's it, perishing and being saved. So recognize humanity's two groups are not Democrat-Republican. They're not Northerners and Southerners. It's not white-collar workers versus blue-collar workers. It's not Calvinists versus Arminians. It's not those who love the cowboys and those who loathe them, though I am proudly in the latter category. Friends, it's not even men and women. It's saved and it's perishing. That's it. Again, the gospel's the dividing line. What you make of it and how you respond to it is literally the matter of salvation or devastation, of damnation. So if you're here this morning and you can hear these words, I hope you're paying attention. Because recognize that you this morning are in Christ's triumphal procession. Every one of us is marching in that procession. The question is, where are you in that procession? Where are you? Are you amongst those who remain as God's enemies in chains and in bondage to sin and therefore destined to be destruct- To destruction? Are you in that category or are you instead Amongst those who have been ransomed, those who have been redeemed from their slavery to sin, those who are now destined for salvation. Those are the two categories right there in that parade. Which is it? Which is it for you? You know, the glorious news is that those positions aren't set. You can change your place in that parade. You can move from the front of the parade, which leads to death, and start to make your way back to the parade, which leads to life. You can change your position because one has gone ahead of you and suffered for you. He has taken your place. Jesus Christ on the cross, that's what he did. He died as a substitute for sinners. So all of those who see their sin, who know their sin, who know the rebellion against God, Who know they do things they ought not to do. And they know there are plenty of things that they should do. They don't do those. They know that about them. They feel some conviction over it. Jesus lived perfectly. So that you wouldn't have to bear the weight of your sins. But he could bear them for you. And his righteousness can become yours. And your sin can become his. And he's laid into the grave. And he bears that sin from you. You can move out of the front of that parade in chains and in repentance and in faith, find freedom and find yourself in that victory section, rejoicing in God. Friends, that's, the, that's what's open to you. That's what Christ would call you to. Repent of your sins and believe in him. Take that offer and find yourself with him. You know, we thought about the purpose the promise, the product of faithful gospel work. Just lastly, let's close thinking about the pattern. Fourth, the pattern of gospel work. Because as Paul reflects on you know, such weighty matters, Paul can't help but wonder in the second half of verse 16. He raises that question. Who is sufficient, he says. Who is sufficient for these things? I.e., who is competent for such a task to take such a gospel to the world? In in some sense, that right there, that question, who is sufficient for these things, like that's the question behind the whole letter. Because Paul's opponents are saying, don't look at Paul, look to us. We are sufficient to explain these things to you. But Paul anticipates that move, highlighting that fact, verse 17 with Titus. And he says, we though are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. You know, that word for pedal, it's a a commercial word. So it was used uh, often of those who engaged in trading, particularly sort of like back alley business deals. It had a a pejorative sense to it. So, you know, pedal, it's as in those who might steal, who might defraud others for their own advantage. So think of it as synonymous with like, Shyster or or huckster or something like that, right? Someone who's willing to take advantage of you to make a buck. And Paul's saying, Yeah, we're not like those people. We don't peddle the word of God like that. Paul's saying, I'm not this spiritual shyster. I don't have some religious wares I'm trying to, to huck at you, right? I'm not trying to hawk them off. It's ministry, Paul's saying, it's not just a business opportunity. That's not why I'm in it. It's not why I do this. Paul does adamantly defend the rights of Christian workers to receive a salary for their work. He actually already argued that back in 1 Corinthians 9. And he's going to argue it in 1 Timothy 5, for example. But so as not to be confused with those in Corinth who are trying to peddle God's word in order to profit off the people. Recall, Paul's not taking a salary from that church. He's taking salaries from other churches in order to serve them. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians 11.8. And so he speaks instead to his sincerity. It's that same word he used back in chapter 1 verse 12 when he spoke of how he behaved among them, right, with simplicity and godly sincerity. Because Paul knows he's been sent by God. And Paul understands everything he does is in the sight of God, his all seeing eye. Paul can't escape that. It's in the sight of God. And so all his speech, he says, is going to be worthy of God because it's going to focus upon Christ and it's going to be done in the power of Christ and it's going to seek to exalt Christ. That's what Paul's ministry is about. That's what he's communicating. In his manner and in his message, Paul's saying it's God exalting. He's not saying he does it perfectly. But it is God exalting. It is not self exalting, Paul says. And friends, that's one of the sad truths I hate to tell you about ministry. Ministry can easily be used as a platform, not to exalt God, but to exalt us, to benefit us, to profit us. How many pastors, and we've seen some of this even in the last few years, how many pastors, have tragically used their pulpits for personal promotion, for power, again, for profit, for money. And from that's not just in the pastoral ministry. My friends, that's in missions work too. You know, we live in a fallen world. Every ministry is going to have its dark underbelly. Sadly, that's just true. And missions itself can be used to, at times, justify a kind of wanderlust. Or it can become a convenient way just to professionalize the Christian faith. So I was talking with Nick Roark. Recall, he's the one we voted upon to come servants and associate, Lord willing, this summer. He, he was here last weekend. We were praying for him, looking for housing, trying to settle out where they might be. And he was telling me the story of, of they had some missionaries who were related sort of loosely to the church there that he's at in Virginia. And they really wanted to share about their ministry and he didn't know them super well, but some other people knew them well. And so in the equivalent of like our quipping hour, they shared some. And uh, the gal got up and she just boasted about how missions has enabled her to live as a professional Christian in the south of France. And she noted with glee, right, how awesome is that? I get paid to be a Christian in France. I don't think it had the effect she wanted. Because they looked at one another like, I don't. Think that's how this is supposed to work. I'm not used to being people quite so transparent about that. Sadly, sometimes that happens though. It can be used sometimes, even missions, as a way to escape accountability, to live outside of local church authority. Because I mean, when you're out there, who really knows what you're doing after all? Who knows how you're really spending your time? Who really knows how you're spending your money? You know, when was the last time you heard of a missionary getting fired? Some say it's the best job security you could ever find. Who wants to fire a worker for Jesus overseas, right? Point being, there can be all kinds of motives for people to pursue gospel work. And friends, not all those motives are equal. Not all of them are commendable. But Paul's saying there's a pattern that's commendable. Where one's manner and one's message honors God. And the entirety of their lives are lived in light of God and to the glory of God. And friends, that's what marked Paul's work. You know, it's amazing if you think about it, how honest and transparent Paul is. Paul's hiding nothing. He, tell, he lays his heart out. He's writing to them. He's sending people. He's not off in a little corner of the world doing his own thing, hoping no one notices because he doesn't want to get discovered. No, he's very transparent. This kind of manner marked his, his work in life. Friends, does it mark ours? You know, both as Christians individually, this should be true of us but particularly as churches, as we think about the kinds of gospel work to support. You know, that's gonna mean making tough choices about what work is worthy of our support as a congregation because we don't just wanna send indiscriminately and then support suspiciously. That's a bad pattern to get into, right? Sending indiscriminately and then supporting suspiciously. No, we want to send patiently, Discerningly, and then support graciously. That's what you want in a church, which means we need to prioritize work whose purpose is to preach Christ and to plant healthy churches for Christ, and whose promise is grounded in the victory of Christ, and whose product is displayed in ministries that smell like Christ. And whose pattern is after the manner and message of Christ. Does that describe ministries you support? Will that describe the kind of ministries increasingly we support? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise that we can gather here and we can hear your word, and we can reflect on that victory procession, and we know that we stand in a position of eternal salvation because of what you have done and because of the way you have showered grace and glory upon us in Christ. And so, God, we pray that with that kind of joy, with that kind of confidence that we would be discerning and that our own lives would match the kind of gospel that we profess. Lord, make that true of us increasingly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.